We are back. Welcome to the planet today. It's the first episode of the new year, Friday, January 12th. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. I am your host, Matt Norton, back with my best friend, my producer, my co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, welcome back, buddy. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back, everyone. I hope everyone had a nice, relaxing, refreshing break. I know I didn't, um, and that's mostly because (laughs) uh, I was preparing for my nephew's first birthday, um, but it was still an absolute blast. So we had a bunch of people over at the house, and it was just an it was a great time. Happy birthday to Angelo. I cannot believe that it's already been a year. It's insane, man. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, time flies. Time absolutely flies. And it's cool, like watching, you know, for me, watching my nieces and my nephew grow up, for you watching your nephew grow up. Nick and I don't have kids, but we we are very kid adjacent thanks to our families. (laughs) So it's, it's real cool watching them grow up without the like actual parent responsibility. Yes, a hundred percent. And it's not something that I thought I was going to be good at, but I feel like I'm like, I'm getting there. I'm decent. We both have pretty good, like cool uncle potential. Yeah. Oh, there's no question about that. (laughs) I think it's just about really refining, you know, your, your work. I think that's really what, what, uh, makes a good uncle, uh, differentiate from a a great uncle. So yeah, we're, we're new to the game, but we're, uh, we're about to hit our, our primes. Nick, we're also (laughs) celebrating something else today. Do you know what today's episode marks? Ooh, uh, I have no idea. No. It is the 200th episode of the planet today. (laughs) Damn, I'm usually on top of that stuff too. Wow. Happy 200, everybody. Holy crud. Yeah. That is so cool. It's a really major milestone. This is cool. I, you know, the way that it worked out, just the fact that like our first new episode of the year, I know we did one of our best of 2023s last week, but this is the first episode Nick and I are sitting down recording of 2024 and it's episode 200 stars kind of aligned and now you got two stars aligning to send you into a killer podcast let's do it oh i love that for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Mary Hoff, who writes, Printable DNA to Bird Bashing Towers. 15 looming issues for biodiversity in 2024. I'm pretty sure that we did this on the first episode last year and the first episode of 2022, but I always really love the yearly outlook on some of the big topics that, honestly, Nick and I might end up covering on the show. The bad news about this article is that It's really boring for us to summarize it because we basically just read off a list of 15 topics. That is just in case anyone hears anything where they're like, wow, that sounds cool. I want to go read the article. It's linked in your show notes. Definitely check it out if you're interested. We're going to list off about five each. Bear with us, and then we'll discuss some that jump out to us. So number one, hydrogen. It's going to be more popular as an alternative to conventional fuels, but hydrogen production creates greenhouse gas emissions of its own unless it's created in the form of green hydrogen. So, so hydrogen is going to be a major talking point that you will probably hear when we're discussing energy for 2024. Ammonia is one of the main ingredients in fertilizer, 
but it requires a ton of energy that mainly comes from fossil fuels to create that fertilizer that is used in agriculture. The intersection between this air and water pollution and food insecurity is going to be a top priority for this year. Three, microbes. Using cultivated bacteria in food production in order to boost protein content without as much environmental impact as other protein sources. So with that, we're talking about how can you use cultivated bacteria instead of deforesting the Amazon for cattle grazing, for example. Four, growing plants in the dark. Researchers have been looking into using electricity, water, and carbon dioxide to produce acetate for plants to use instead of the glucose produced by photosynthesis. Five, rock dust. This can be used on farms to increase the number of microorganisms on farmland and lessen the impacts that they feel from climate change. Number six, protecting earthworms and helping increase their population, which is important for maintaining healthy soil. Speaking of soil, number seven, new technologies are making it easier to listen to the sounds that soil is making in order to see how healthy the soil is. Really cool. Eight, the impact of smoke on ecosystems. Plants, animals, other living things, and entire ecosystems have evolved as climates change. Large-scale changes could easily alter the balance of nature with potentially harmful consequences for biodiversity at large. Number nine, customizing DNA could lead to both positive and negative conservation impacts, including breeding more resilient crops and animals, but these could outcompete native plants and animals. Number 10, scientists are using deep learning, machine learning, and artificial intelligence to predict which new substances may be toxic or have negative impacts. Few more, stick with us. Promise we'll get into the fun part right after this. 11, billions of birds that migrate from Southern Europe along the Red Sea will now have to either avoid or strike into the Neom megacity skyscraper development in Saudi Arabia. Scientists worry that the skyscraper will disrupt ecosystems and the population of birds, their prey, and their predators. 12, sea urchins decreasing in population could have major negative impacts on corals, fish, crabs, and other marine life. 13, adding fertilizer to seaweed in order to help algae grow and sequester more carbon could help store more atmospheric carbon in the ocean. 14, the twilight zone of the ocean, which is from 200 to 1,000 meters or 700 to 3,000 feet deep, is something that's going to be a major talking point because as the atmosphere warms, so does the twilight zone. This is dangerous for carbon sequestration, but also for the marine life that lives there. Last one, increasing greenhouse gas emissions are changing ocean currents, which impacts marine life's shipping routes and habitable conditions on both land and sea. Nick, which of these jumped out at you the most? You know, a lot of them, I feel like we're referencing soil health. A lot of them talking about soil, mm-hmm. um, protecting soil, maintaining healthy soil. And I think that's something we can all just kind of get behind because you're just talking about increased nutrition from vegetables and, and plants and and other things that we consume on this planet, nuts, all that stuff. Mm. Um, so I think we're all, we can all be very easily on board there. And then the other thing was uh, the sea urchins one, which is something we hopped on board maybe a year early. I think we hopped on that <laughs> right at the end of 2023. <laughs> yeah. Just a year early on that one. So um, yeah, if you didn't hear that episode, go check that one out. We talked about how sea urchins are basically the new spotted lantern fly and they're getting killed and used in cuisine. Well, it was a specific type of, what was it? The purple sea urchin, I believe it was, it was purple. You're right. Purple. Yeah. Cause we talked about protecting California's kelp forest on December 22nd. That's the episode Nick's referencing. Yes. Yeah. That is a really good point. 
And I, I think both of those are also very interesting to me. One thing, I guess two things I'd like to point out. The, the one about birds migrating through Saudi Arabia's new megacity, to me, that is a really major talking point that I think we need to talk more about. And it's bird strikes in cities specifically. You know, a lot of people who are very anti-renewable energy will jump at birds and say that, why would you put up these wind turbines? They're killing birds. You know, it's really bad for them. When in reality, when done correctly, which as long as you're in a country that requires environmental impact assessments, you're doing it correctly. Wind turbines aren't killing many birds. It's not zero. It's not a number that we should just ignore. And it's not something we shouldn't try to mitigate because we should. And we should always try to make sure that we are doing everything in an environmentally conscious way. But so many more birds die from striking windows or striking cars than turbines to a point where it's like not even something we should compare. And I know if we want to take that a step further, outside cats will kill way more birds than car strikes or window strikes or wind turbines. So I know that was me taking a little bit of a jump and saying that this city and the the either rerouting of migratory birds or the bird strikes is a major talking point. It is, but I want to take it a step further and say that just bird migration patterns and things like that, you know, development as it relates to migratory species, that is something that we should talk about a lot more and especially how that relates to renewable energy. The other thing that I wanted to bring up quickly was customizable DNA. And I think that this article did a good job of summarizing, like, this could be good or this could be bad. And I think when we start playing God, it's very, very important to do things slow and Mm -hmm. meticulously and make sure that we aren't just going full send right away where, you know, let's say we create these crops that are way more resilient to insects and then you don't need to use artificial fertilizers and insecticides. Those are good things until they start killing off the very ecosystem that they are planted in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as long as researchers customizing DNA are doing things in a way where if things seem like they could get out of hand, hand, we can stop it right away. I'm all for this. But I think customizing DNA, it's a very, very slippery slope where I think there is so much potential to do good. It just gives me a little bit of pause. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I wouldn't have even thought of that. Yeah, definitely could get out of control, I would say. Um, something we have to walk into. Yeah, it's, it's the whole thing with like robot technology, AI, you know, like all of these new innovative advances in tech, they're good until they aren't. And it's yeah. about making sure that we keep it as good as possible for as long as possible. That way we know we can trust it. But if we just start rolling out, you know, like AI is another good example. If we just start rolling out all these machine learning techniques and, and artificial intelligence robots to start doing things for us, you know, we don't know what that leads to. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. All right. Our next story is from Shaikh Hussein and Rick Nowak of the Washington Post who write, bad air forces Pakistan to shut schools and markets and seed the clouds. On Christmas Eve, this article was published and discussed how Pakistani authorities closed schools due to low air quality and deployed artificial rain to help deal with rising air pollution. Pollution levels were similar to the most polluted parts of India, where New Delhi has dealt with smog for years during the winter months that puts the entire city at a standstill. Lahore, Pakistan, 
became the world's most polluted city during the stretch, resulting in its 11 million residents projected to lose over seven years in average life expectancy due to just how bad the air quality was. The government implemented traffic restrictions and dropped salts from planes to cause rain droplets to form. In theory, rain would help push pollutants down and improve the air quality. Scientists have expressed concerns over whether or not this actually works, though. Yeah, and from the article, it says directly, besides deforestation and the disappearance of green spaces, researchers and activists primarily blame exhaust and dust from construction sites, toxic emissions from old cars and factories, and the burning of seasonal crop residue as to why this air quality has gotten so bad. To me, that is just like the icing on the cake, the absolute thing that we need to look at and say, yeah, we need to rapidly decarbonize everything. You know, it's not just about transportation and and moving to electric vehicles. It's not just about buildings and moving to renewable energy. It's not just about construction and moving to a a form of concrete that doesn't produce as much emissions. It's everything. Yeah. Because whether it's old cars, whether it's old inefficient factories, whether it's, it's dust kicking up from construction sites, everything is preventable to some degree. And out of those, what I would say in a rapidly industrializing place it's a lot easier to focus on decarbonization regardless of how costly it is, regardless of how time consuming it is. It's a lot easier to focus on that than it is to say, Hey, stop industrializing because dust is being kicked up. Is that important? Absolutely. But we have to control what we can control. And when it comes to industrialization, when it comes to, to bringing certain countries that are developing into the developed world, and I'm not just talking about Pakistan here, I'm talking in general, like we can't tell people stop building during so-and-so mm-hmm. months because the land is drier because you haven't had rain in a while. So you're going to kick up dust and that's going to lead to air pollution. That's going to, that's going to happen. And it'd be sure yeah. we could do that. But then how do you tell that country, by the way, we know you're trying to catch up and, and get more electricity for your people. You're not going to do that this year. Sorry. We, we can't do that. You know, what we can do is help, developing countries help those those yeah. less affluent nations through a lot of the funding that's being created in COP28's agreement last year that we talked about in November, but help those countries get a step forward. That way, when those old cars and those old factories phase out, the new things that are being built aren't leading to more air pollution, aren't leading to more carbon emissions going into the atmosphere, aren't leading to more smog being burnt from the coal stacks. Yeah, this is, it's like, it's so easy to get caught up in whatever you want, politics, the economy, um, focusing on small businesses, all Mm -hmm. this stuff. And all this stuff is important. But like when we forget like literally the cornerstones of what we need as people, like air, clean air and clean water to drink, Mm -hmm. we, I don't know, we forget like the most simple stuff and it ends up being the most detrimental to our communities. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I think sometimes we get caught up in focusing on the macro, like the politics of it, the the economics of it, the economy at large, when in reality, the thing we're talking about with climate change the most is this is people's lives. Yeah. And a lot of times we, and I'm not saying me and you, because I think we're pretty aligned on a lot of this stuff, but a lot of times we argue about who's going to pay for it. And well, one party supports it and the other doesn't, or one state's very against it and the other is. And so yeah. those are the things that kind of keep us from progress. And every time we are, we are hindered in that, 
you're talking about more disenfranchised people who have done the least historically to contribute to climate change being more heavily impacted by its effects. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's move into this week's environmental policy roundup. The Biden administration has given the green light to Louisiana regulators seeking to approve carbon capture projects in the Gulf Coast. Louisiana will be able to issue permits for wells that store carbon dioxide, which is a critical component of carbon capture and removal technology. In all but two other states, the U.S. EPA is the one that's responsible for that permitting. The $7,500 tax credit for electric vehicles is set to become easier to get in 2024. The rebate can be applied while purchasing the vehicle instead of receiving it as a credit on the next year's taxes. Car dealerships will submit documentation to the IRS so that they can be reimbursed, while the person purchasing the car just basically receives a discount. The bad news is that fewer cars apply. In an effort to create more jobs for Americans, this tax credit only applies to vehicles that are assembled in North America. Azerbaijan has named its ecology minister to lead the UN's annual climate conference this year, COP29. Mukhtar Babayev worked in the state's oil company of Azerbaijan for over 20 years before being named ecology minister. You know exactly what I'm going to say about that, and I'm f***ing pissed that year after year, we're going to these oil-rich nations and we're appointing people who who have a, a real, like, they have skin in the game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they want oil to stay on the main stage. Those are the people that are going to be running COP29 the same way that it happened in COP28. So what I am calling upon early, 10 months in advance, 11 months in advance, is world leaders. We know you all religiously listen to the planet today. <laughs> Stop listening to oil companies. Yeah. Kick big oil out of the conversation. You know, last year I said it at one point during our COP28 review or preview, I forget. Yeah, it's probably important that we have them have a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. It's important for them to say, we are going to help transition into renewable energy because we can't go into renewable energy 100% tomorrow. So you need oil and gas for the next however many years, but we're going to help you with that transition. Yeah, That is the extent of what I want to hear from oil and gas companies. I don't want an oil baron. I don't want Joe Manchin to be the head of COP30 or whatever, if it's in the US, whenever the next conference of the parties in the US is. like I, I don't want the the CEO of Exxon Mobil to lead us. Yeah, it's it's almost unbelievable that this keeps happening. It's like we we talk It'd be unbelievable if it didn't happen last year. <laughs> like it's so believable. That's the problem. No, but like we the fact that we talk about it and we're like, "Oh, we have hope." Yeah. We're like, you know, we're you know, maybe they'll they'll appoint someone. This was like a lesson I I was talking about how it let this serve as a precedent and you know, we should never have someone be the head of COP20 um, whatever of of the cops, while they're like also an oil baron or have a, a, an invested interest in in oil, yeah. And it's it is in that way. It is unbelievable that this just continues to happen. Yeah, and you know what? We're on to COP thirty. Twenty twenty five is our year. No, I'm kidding. There's still a lot that could happen this year that will be good. You know, we're still experiencing a lot of follow ups from COP twenty eight. There's still plenty of potential, and and maybe I'm being too cynical. You know. Last year wasn't as bad as I was expecting, even if it wasn't as good as I hoped. So let's hope that uh, more of the same this year, I guess, until we start appointing like I, I want I want someone who who worked at a wildlife conservation nonprofit to lead the conference of parties. That'd be awesome. Like Christian Samper, who was president of the Wildlife Conservation Society for a while. He should be leading conference of parties. 
I'm in. It sounds like St. Pear. I'm in. <laughs> All right. We are going to take a quick break. All three of those stories are in your show notes if you want to read any of those for more detail. When we get back, we got two more stories for you. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co slash TPT for 15% off. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co slash TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, World Wine Harvest 2023, lowest volume in 60 years by decanters Rudy Rutenberg. So this is actually an article from early November that Nick had sent to me, and I wanted to save it for an episode either towards the end of the year or start of this year because it was announced this week that 2023 was the hottest year on record. We expected that. I know at some point last year we covered when 2023 was on pace to be the hottest year on record. Mm -hmm. And we know that's bad. You as a listener know that's bad. Instead of going over that story, we're going to cover this instead, which is covering what the hottest year on record means for something that many people are consuming. Global wine output last year was the lowest since 1961 across all major wine producing regions. The world is expected to produce around 244 million hectoliters of wine in 2023 from last year's 262 million hectoliters, which was already below average. Some of the major issues that wine producers faced stemmed from drought, flooding, wildfires, and fungal diseases. The grapes used for winemaking are very sensitive to the effects of climate change, and rising temperatures have changed the growing cycle for grapes over the past several years. Georgia Del Grosso, the head of statistics of the International Organization of Vine and Wine, or the OIV, is quoted in the article as saying, extreme climatic conditions such as early frost, heavy rainfall, and drought have significantly impacted the output of the world vineyard. Meteorological anomalies are becoming the new normality, and this is without any doubt one of the most relevant challenges for the wine sector. Wine production fell roughly 7% in Europe and 19% in the Southern Hemisphere. A major exception to this global struggle was in the United States, where cooler temperatures and heavy rains in the winter for Napa and Sonoma helped U.S. wine production increase by 12% last year. American exceptionalism, baby. We did what the rest of the world couldn't. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I real quick, I, I know this is a podcast about the environment and not wine, but I just want to shed a little bit of light as to why grapes are so sensitive to climate change. So heat in general for a grapevine increases sugar in the grapes and then decreases acid. So when we have severe heat or anything over 105 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to reduce vine photosynthesis and slow sugar accumulation during ripening. And then it's also going to increase malic acid respiration, which is going to lead to that reduced acidity. So when we have grapes that are reaching peak ripeness too quickly because of the extreme heat, and then in turn, their acidity is also lower. We have a wine that is just completely out of balance. And if you don't think that matters, I can guarantee almost everyone listening right now would be able to tell the difference between a wine that's made in an extremely hot vintage versus a normal vintage or a cool vintage. What is it? What does it say? Is it just like more acidic? It's, it's both. It's so both it's, it's reduced acidity and it's also basically the, what happens to the grapes is they desiccate. They just die because okay. they the UV light from the sun and also the heat reduces sugar levels. And when you have a wine that doesn't have adequate sugar levels, you're not going to be able to convert it to enough alcohol. Yeah. So sugar converts to alcohol during fermentation. So the reason that sugar is so important in wine and, and in the grapes and the berries of the wine before it's produced is because in so many Appalachians and, and all over the world, you can't sell wine specifically if it's under a certain alcohol level. So you have to meet these points gotcha. uh, in order to be to be sold as you know, let's say whatever, a red wine from Burgundy or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and, and you also are charged more on the tariff from, uh, from Europe to the U S as well. Gotcha. So, you know, just basically cuts out a good portion of the market. If the, if the wine that we're trying to import from Italy or Spain or wherever, or France isn't, isn't able to be imported because it doesn't have a high enough alcohol content to be considered a wine from that region. Right. Exactly. Yep. Nick is our wine guy here. I, I do the environmental <laughs> policy stuff. Nick brings in like the actual cool stuff of, of how this all matters. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. I'm still just kind of learning about all of it, but yeah, I do my best. <laughs> I wanted to highlight something real quick that Georgia Del Grosso said. You had mentioned this, but I want to just bring it back. Meteorological anomalies are becoming the new normality. And you know, basically what she's saying there is that we're seeing extremes happen all the time. We're seeing more frost. We're seeing more drought, more flooding. Everything under climate change that used to be every 100 years is now every 20. And, and it's getting a lot harder to predict these cycles because of what's going on with the climate and because of how rapidly things are changing. So let's go ahead and get right into our last quick hit of the week. And it's from CNN's Rachel Ramirez, who writes, Where is the ice? Great Lakes ice cover is nearly non-existent and reaches 50-year record low. So another story that kind of highlights 2023 was the hottest year on record. This is what that means. Ice cover on New Year's Day was only 0.35% of the Great Lakes, which typically averages around 10% at the start of the year. The lack of ice, along with lower snowpack levels in the American West and a snow drought in the Northeast, is showing us in real time what the impacts of climate change looks like. This has impacts on the shipping industry, which is experiencing a longer shipping season due to more vessels and ice-free waters. Coastal towns are not loving the, the lack of ice as much since they benefit through recreational activities like ice fishing competitions or ice hockey. 
Without ice along the coast of the Great Lakes, the coastlines are more at risk of flooding, coastal erosion, and damages. Ramirez writes, quote, cold air is needed to cool the water so the lakes can freeze. But with the climate rapidly heating up, records show warmer than average temperatures in the region are melting the chances for Great Lake ice to form. With air temperature consistently 8 to 12 degrees warmer than average leading up to the start of 2024, it would take a stretch of days below freezing to offset all of this. And that is a realistic possibility, according to NOAA's James Kessler. He says one prolonged blast of Arctic air in the coming weeks could cause ice coverage to increase exponentially. And peak ice in the Great Lakes typically occurs in late February or early March. So is it deeply, deeply concerning that we have 0.35% of ice coverage when we normally have 10? Yes, absolutely. This is not a death sentence. And now we just got to hope that we do get that blast of Arctic air. And I'm sorry to the shipping industry to say that that's what we're rooting for here. But, you know, we got we got to be pulling for some sort of ecosystem equilibrium. And if that takes a very cold stretch to freeze parts of the Great Lakes again, that's what we're looking for here. Yeah, as much as we want to, you know, be worried about this, you know, we still could easily have a, a massive cold blast in February. We o- almost always do, at least up here. Um, so don't be too concerned yet. It's still very early in the winter season. Uh, we still have a lot to go here. So uh, I think for sure we'll see some uh, some ice forming in the, in the coming days even. so Yeah, that is a, a really great point. And I think that's a really good point to end the show on for this week. So that is it for this week's episode of TPT. We'll be back next Friday for our first interview of the year. It's with special guest Jeffrey Rissman. Until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can and follow our socials at Planet Today Pod, where I will be more active on TikTok and Instagram this year. Probably not going to be using X, formerly known as Twitter.com as much. Nick Chanus produces our show and makes all the music you hear throughout. Nick, where can people hear your tunes you can hear my stuff at soundcloud.com slash budlin cape and that is b-u-d-l-y-n-c-a-p-e go check it out y'all go check it out show nick some love our logo is made by kaylee veets have a great weekend everyone and we'll catch you right here next friday peace